would you turn with me to John chapter 18? And we're going to look at verses 12 through 27 today. John 18, 12 through 27. I'm preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you don't have a copy, please grab one. We have some on the table. would love for you to have one of those. Uh, once you have God's Word opened in front of you, if you'd look up, and then uh, once I see a lot of eyes, I'll read, and uh, then I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for His help for us this morning. So John 18, 12 through 27, would you hear now the word of God? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. <clears throat> so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of this, his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us, even in this very moment, where we have the opportunity to sit and learn and grow and to hear the instruction of your word. May we look at this narrative, this story, with open eyes and open hearts. Would you apply what is needed to each and every individual here for their good and your glory? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we left off with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane facing hundreds of soldiers and religious leaders led by the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. 
uh, we learn that Jesus did not hide from his captors. Rather, he willfully gave himself up to accomplish the redemptive plan of salvation with complete control and compassion for those involved. Today we switch scenes as John moves us from the confrontation in the garden to the interrogation of Jesus in, in the courtyard of the high priest. Now this is not a normal judicial process by any stretch of the imagination. According to the Mishnah, which is a book of the oral laws and traditions of the Jews, the trial of Jesus was conducted with serious irregularities and violations of Jewish traditions and legal customs of the day. Uh, here are a few of the violations that uh, we can take note of. One, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet at night. So they're breaking that. Two, the death penalty could not be declared on the day of the trial. Third, false evidence was presented here. Fourth, false witnesses were used. We'll see that in the weeks ahead, Lord willing. And fifth, Jesus was subjected to physical abuse during the trial. Uh, that's a no-no. Moreover, it was against the law for the Sanhedrin to convene for a capital case on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. So all that gives us a great picture of understanding that what they're doing is wrong. All of these violations indicate that Jesus' condemnation by the Jewish authorities was a mockery of the law that they claim to love and obey. This is a kangaroo court, and everybody knows it. They failed to give Jesus a fair hearing. They failed to give him his due process of the law. And with that understanding as our backdrop, I want to take some time to walk through this narrative, this scene. And, and then what we'll do is we'll go back and we'll look at the, the, the characters, the reaction of the characters involved as kind of an application and overview for us. So look here with me at verse 12 as we just make our way through this narrative and see what is taking place. So the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, just pause right there because I find it really interesting that right after they have witnessed the power of Jesus Christ, that he has knocked them over with the word of his voice, the sound of his voice, his power of word here. And then he's also healed the ear of Malchus. They think it's appropriate to tie Jesus up. I think this further shows us that Jesus willfully allowed them to take him captive. And he also allowed them to kind of uh, get this picture in their mind that they had him where they wanted him. Nevertheless, they tie him up. And then we read that in verse 13, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient or good that one man should die for the people. 
So John tells us that they take Jesus tied up to Annas. Uh, he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas is the current high priest. So the, it begs the question, why would they take him to Annas if it, he wasn't the enacting high priest of the day? To answer this question, we have to look at the role of the high priest during Jesus' time. See, the high priest played a major role in the live, lives of the Israelites. The high priest acted as the uh, representative of the people. When they sinned, he offered sacrifice that would then allow them to reconcile uh, with God for that time. And while the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire, uh, the high priest, the, the kind of religious court and council was sort of a government within a government. So they had separate roles of power. They had separate representation. Now Annas was the former high priest. He was also the patriarch of a family that had at least five uh, priests that came from that family. And now we see that Caiaphas is uh, his uh, son-in-law. So Annas is a man that has great respect. He has great power. He, he's kind of the, the man behind the scenes. It's kind of moving the pieces around, even though he's not enacting as the current high priest according to Rome. Uh, furthermore, it was the Romans who had deposed Annas from the priesthood in AD 15, about 15 years before Jesus's trial. But according to Jewish customs, which we read about in Numbers 35, the high priest was supposed to be the high priest for life. So the Jews would have continued to see Annas because they nominated him. He was appointed once and for all in their eyes. They would have considered him the reigning and ruling high priest, although the Romans had taken him away. John also reminds us that the acting high priest Caiaphas is the one who said it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. Now, let me assure you that Caiaphas did not believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. What Caiaphas is doing here is he's saying, look, here's how we get out of all this mess. Here's how we can appease the people will put a man forward. He will die. Now, Caiaphas unwittingly says that, and that's a reference to John eleven fifty, And that's after the aftermath of discussing uh, what happened when Jesus raises Lazarus. Remember, people are coming forward. They're, they're wondering what has happened. This man, Jesus, has just raised Lazarus. And Caiaphas then interjects with this idea. So John brings it up. He reminds us that this is the man who said that. But we see that they take Jesus to Annas first. 
And verse 15 says that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That other disciple would be the writer John. Most uh, credible scholars agree that it is no one, none other than the apostle John himself. He never references himself by name in his gospel. Uh, there's another point in the gospel where he talks about the other disciple when they're running after Jesus after they see the empty grave. The other gospel writers remind us that, oh yeah, that, is, that was John. So we can rightly say that this is John himself. And then we read that since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So John had a familial connections uh, with the high priest. Uh, this was probably through his family because they were wealthy. We know that because we read in other parts of Scripture that they had servants. Uh, and so we also can maybe uh, think about John's connection to Zacharias, who was John the Baptist's father. There's some familial connections there. And if you recall, Zacharias was indeed a priest himself. Nevertheless, we know that John is connected. He's got some inside connections where he can make his way into this courtyard. But we see that Peter, on the other hand, he's outside. And then John uses his influence to get his boy Peter in. We read, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So, you know, John's probably like, hey, my boy Peter's outside. We got to go get him inside too. He walks over to him, gets him in, and now Peter's in this courtyard. Now picture the courtyard. You've got walls around. You've got, there's barriers to this. And uh, this is a place where probably many of the high priest's homes existed. They, they probably all shared this courtyard, especially remembering that Annas was the patriarch, that he had many of his family members who served as high priests. So I want you to have that picture in your mind. 17 tells us that the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now pause for a moment. We've got a simple servant girl who poses absolutely no threat to Peter and asks him, are you one of the man's disciples? The, the man that they've got back there. Are, are you one of his disciples too? And Peter denies Jesus. This is our first denial. And we're going to talk more about this here in a moment, but I want you to take note of it here. Next, we see that the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. I mean, just the details that John gives us uh, just further uh, punctuates the fact that this is eyewitness account here. And he says that they were standing there, they're warming themselves, and Peter also was with them. He's standing and warning, warming himself also. So now Peter is kind of cozied up uh, to the enemy. He's over there using the same fire that they're using, and he, he's now just uh, accompanying himself with the, the pleasure and the camaraderie of those that have just arrested his king. What's going on with Jesus? Well, he is being interrogated. 
We see that in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, this is likely happening, right? This is, John's given us kind of uh, two scenes in one. We get the juxtaposition of Peter and Jesus here. Uh, two characters uh, reacting to the same situation. So Jesus is being questioned. He's being questioned about his disciples and his teaching. This is a preliminary hearing uh, before the real trial. And they're asking Jesus about two things. One, they want to know, who are your followers? Uh, Probably wondering, like, who do we need to worry about? Who do we need to go after to ensure that uh, they don't cause some type of revolt? But not only do they care about Jesus' followers, they care about Jesus' teachings. They care about the disciples and his doctrine. What else did you teach? Tell us what you taught. Now, this is the main issue because what are they trying to do to Jesus? They're trying to get Jesus for blasphemy. They want to charge him. They want to indict him for blasphemy or heresy. So they've asked Jesus these questions, and then we read in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, a few observations that we must take note of here. One, Jesus says nothing about his disciples. I mean, he completely disregards that question. I believe that that's in order to continue to uphold his promise that he will not lose any of his people. We looked at that last week, but here we see it again. Jesus is committed to the safeguarding of his people up until the point of his crucifixion and then resurrection so that they then can carry on the word and the truth of what has happened, to write it down, to give us even. We looked at that many weeks ago when we talked about the the power of the Holy Spirit within us and how the power of the Holy Spirit had worked within the disciples and the apostles. and, And then they were able to give us now the word of God. So we too can be called to Christ. He also says that he's always spoken openly. Essentially what he's saying here is that I haven't hidden anything. All of my doctrine, everything that I have said has been openly available to all who want to hear. Now listen, this is a good reminder that although Jesus taught his disciples privately, he also taught in synagogues and temples where his teachings were accessible to anyone who wanted to listen. J.C. Ryle is helpful here, and he quote, I quote him here. It shows that he was eminently a public teacher. He kept back no part of his message from any class 
of the population. He proclaimed it with equal boldness in every place. There was nothing whatever of reserve about his gospel, end quote. Quick application for us here is that this should compel Christians to proclaim the truth of Christ in the public square. Listen, there is nowhere on this earth that we don't proclaim King Jesus. It is all his. We should be open. We should be bold. And we should have courage that there is nothing on this earth that Jesus Christ does not say, mine. This is what we see here. And since Jesus has spoken so openly, he suggests that his captors should go and talk to those who have heard him. He's like, go interview some of the witnesses. See what they have to say about my teachings. Uh, what's important to see here also is that that would have been the right process for a fair trial that day. So essentially what Jesus is saying is give me a fair trial. Go do what you're supposed to do. Go uphold the law you claim to love. But they don't like this. Verse 22 tells us, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Friends, look at the corruption here. Jesus Christ is tied up. And because they don't like the words that have come out of his mouth, they strike the Savior. I mean, this is corruption at its greatest. We've got to remember, these are self-proclaimed men of God. And we read that they unjustly strike the King of Kings, the Messiah who essentially has come to redeem their people. And then Jesus says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Once again, another way of saying, give me a fair trial. If I said something wrong, then address it. But if what I said is right, which it was because all that Jesus says is right, then do the right thing. At this point, Annas has had enough. We read in verse 24 that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the acting high priest. Now, uh, we got to note here that it's important that the acting high priest was the one that would take the charge, the official charge to Rome, to Pilate here. Uh, if it was going to be legitimate, it had to be the one that Rome recognized. So therefore, if the Jewish leaders want to bring Jesus in front of Pilate, Caiaphas has to be the one who does it. So Annas is like, I've had enough. We're getting nowhere. Go to Caiaphas. And then in verse 25, John takes us back to the scene of Peter. We see what's going on with him. Verse 25, we read, 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. I mean, Peter's just casually hanging with Jesus' enemies. Naturally, if we're hanging with people, it's going to naturally produce conversation. So they said to him, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He says, I am not. This is his second denial. Then 26, we read that one of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, wait a minute, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. So there's the third denial. With the rooster crowing as Jesus has promised. I mean, what an evening. What a sequence of events. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, has been seized. He's held captive. Meanwhile, his boldest disciple shamefully denies ever knowing him. This is what John writes. This is what scene has unfolded. And now I want to circle back and just double click on the, the three groups of people that are recorded in this scene. As we watch now their mixed reactions to the events taking place. First, I want us to notice the unbelievers' disdain. The unbelievers' disdain. So think about it for a moment. The group of men who are opposing Jesus in this scene, we've got religious leaders, we've got Roman soldiers, we've got servants, we've got officers. Most of these men have just witnessed the power of Jesus Christ. They've witnessed two miracles in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has knocked them down. I mean, they, they, they physically felt the power of Christ. Uh, and then we, we see that he, he healed Malchus's ear. I mean, even one of the people that bring up the fact that they know that Peter is one of his disciples say, I saw that. Here's something that we should recognize, though. Although they have been privy to witness the power of Jesus, the miracles of Christ, all of them remained apathetic and indifferent as if they had witnessed nothing unusual. They continued with their abominable task. John tells us they seize him, they, they bind him, they took him away. J.C. Ryle says, quote, He who thinks that seeing a miracle would convert a man into a thorough Christian has got much to learn. See, this scene is an example of the fact that it is only through the transformational power of God working in the heart of man that changes man's disposition. The disdain of unbelievers cannot be undone by external experiences. Man's hardened heart cannot be softened by emotional affairs. We need a work of God. We need God to 
to transform our hearts, to remove the heart of stone. Give us a heart of flesh. We need the holy creator to intervene and do what David asks him in Psalm 51.10, where we read, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Church, let this story remind us of the mercy and grace of God towards us. That he alone changed our hearts. Any affection for God is all because of his affection for us. We love because he first loved us. And let us also remember that the unconverted world is just that. They're unconverted. They're hardened towards God. Their hearts are hard. And we should not be surprised or shocked when they respond accordingly. Are you here and this is your response to God? Is your heart hardened towards him? Do you have disdain towards the creator of you and all things? Are you indifferent to God? Has God become pedestrian to you? Maybe your life is just full of religious activity and there's no true desire for him. My prayer is that you would ask God to change your heart of indifference today. That you would repent of your sinful lifestyle, your sin and rebellion against God, and that you would then turn to Christ as your substitute, as your Savior, as your Lord. Second, we see Peter's denial. The great disciple, Mr. Bravado, the one who has just cut off the ear of a man in front of hundreds of soldiers who could have squashed him. And here we see he denies the Savior. I mean, this is the one who he pledged allegiance to until the death. And now that he has witnessed the, the disdain of unbelievers, now that he has seen his Lord captive, he has totally abandoned all of his allegiance. I mean, he fails miserably here. A couple of things that we learn from Peter's denial is one, we learn the danger of pride and self-confidence. See, pride is a terrible thing. Uh, pride will ultimately lead to destruction. The Bible is clear on that. If we turn over here to Matthew 26, 30, turn there with me, I want you to see this. So we're reminded by Matthew's account This is right after the Passover, 
Jesus has observed the Lord's Supper with his people. And when Jesus foretells Peter's denial, we read in verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. So Jesus prophesies this. He says, everyone's going to scatter. It's going to happen. And he points back to scripture. He says, I will, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then verse 33 tells us, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same. Friends, we must not have great confidence in our abilities, but we must have great confidence in our Savior's ability. See, it is not that we are clinging, holding on to Christ. It is that he is holding us in his hand, that, that he will not let any of his sheep be harmed, that he will keep us to the end. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where uh, Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It goes on to say that it is God who provides a way out of a temptation. Essentially saying that it is all God's work to keep us to the ends. It's all upon him. Second, Peter shows us the painful influence of the fear of man. Listen, Peter has become scared here because of his surroundings. I mean, his, his umph has been thrown out the window because of what he is looking at. He's cozied up with the enemy and he's compromised his position because he's just fitting in with his surroundings. And watch how it takes place. First, it's the servant, the simple servant. Next, it's the casual conversation. Then it's someone who points out a direct connection with Jesus. Church, do not miss the slippery slope. Calvin says, quote, at first, the fault will not be very great. Next, it becomes habitual. And at last, after the conscience has been laid asleep, he who has accustomed himself to despise God will think nothing unlawful, but will dare to commit the greatest wickedness. You don't just arrive at grotesques sin's doorstep. It is a slippery slope, friends. It is compromise here, denying your allegiance to Christ there. 
It's one little thing after another. And then you end up doing things you thought you would never, ever do. We must resolve to claim hold to our profession, to put forth the truth in every situation. The question we must ask is, how often do you compromise your position? How often do you, do, do you deny Christ either by word or by deed? If I were to go to maybe your unchurched friend group and I were to ask them, do you think so-and-so is a genuine believer? What would be their response? I understand that some, the answer would be a resounding yes and amen. But I wonder if that's true for everyone. Does everyone know that you are Christ's disciple? Are you wearing the badge of follower of Christ in the way that you treat others, in the way that you speak, in the way that maybe some hear you talk of others? I mean, what is your response? What is your reaction? How are you putting forth and waving the banner of Christ to friends, family, co-workers? Uh, kids, how are you waving the banner of Christ when it comes to obedience to your parents? Are you obeying? Are you trusting what God has said? That it is good for kids to obey. That that is your job right now. I tell my kids all the time, you got, you got one job, that's to obey. Obey what we say. How often do we deny Christ? Friends, I'm of, of utmost conviction that we should be upfront with who we are. Else we find ourselves in compromising circumstances where people are surprised to hear that we are Christians. Like, what? I never knew you were a Christian. I've been with you for the last year, six months, six weeks even. How do you live? But listen, this account also must remind us that even the greatest men will fall. It is written down by all four gospel writers, further showing us the authenticity of their writing, but even more showing us that while Peter failed miserably, the grace and mercy of God restored him. As we know, he went out to do great work for the name of Christ. He pressed on. One commentator says, quote, Peter no doubt fell shamefully and only rose again after heartfelt repentance and bitter tears. But he did rise again. He was not left to reap the consequences of his sin and cast off forevermore. End quote. Praise be to God. Listen. No matter how you have failed, no matter what your past may look like, the checkered stains of failure, 
there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. When we fail, when we fall, when we deny our Savior, rather be it big or small, whatever the case may be, may we repent, confess, and turn to the Savior who loves us. Forgiveness is offered, friends. The Lord blesses those that come to him with a contrite heart, with true repentance. And here's why. As we look lastly at Jesus' determination, Jesus was determined to go to the cross. He was determined to accomplish redemption for his people. Nothing could stop the Savior. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, he's arrested. He's tried before wicked judges. He's beaten. And despite this, he had the power at all times to free himself. He could have called down legions of angels to wipe them out. He also knew his accusers would one day face his judgment. Yet he surrendered without resistance. Friends, Christ's love for sinners is incomprehensible. It is far too great for the human mind to understand. We can understand suffering for the deserving, submission to mistreatment, but voluntarily suffering for an ungrateful world surpasses all human understanding. I mean, Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him. He prophesied about it. He told him, you're going to deny me. Jesus knew everything that was going to take place. Yet we remember Christ's willingness to suffer for our salvation. His determination towards the cross. He didn't allow himself to be taken captive, tried, and sentenced to death because he was helpless. Instead, he chose to bear our sins, be treated as a sinner, and be punished in our place. He took all that you and I deserve willfully. He did this all voluntarily so that we, God's people, Christians, can be set free and declared innocent. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's talking to Christians there. Consider the words of the Apostle Peter who writes after his denial, after he's been restored. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I am confident 
that the apostle Peter remembered this night and remembered the great unrighteousness that, that he bore when he denied the Savior. But it compelled him to live different. Peter went on to be a bold ambassador for the kingdom because he understood that it was Christ's determination that carried him through and that will continue to carry him home. Church, may this be our resolve. May we stand firm. May we be bold. May we be a people who reject denial of Christ. May we be a people that when we gather to equip, we, we scatter throughout the week to evangelize. Students, many of you are at Liberty University, and uh, I was just talking to a young man uh, a couple of uh, days ago, and he's like, yeah, I've got this unbeliever in my hall, and you know, I'm just trying to figure out uh, how to minister to uh, him. And let me just encourage you that although you're at a Christian university, if you don't understand it yet, you have unchristians, unbelievers around you. So you must be a people that stands firm on the truth of God. Do not compromise your obedience to Christ. Uh, friends and family in your workplace. I know that many of you are dealing with uh, difficult circumstances. was talking to a brother in our church who's a, a teacher and helps to lead the FCA in his school, and he's facing uh, a little bit of a pushback from uh, some of his coworkers and administration. God will keep you. He will give you wisdom. Stay on the course. Keep plotting ahead. Keep your eyes on Christ in every situation. Moms that are dealing with difficult households, toddlers, and hardships of raising families. Fathers who are aiming to be obedient to the Demands and commands of Scripture to, to lead their family, shepherd their family well. May we be a people that continue to put forth Christ to our family. May we be a people that continue to demonstrate Christ and model what Christianity truly is. So our kids will never be able to say we were ones of hypocrisy. We must live a life of confession, repentance, even to them. I mess up a lot, and I admit it. We confess, we repent, and we rest upon the determination of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, you are so good and kind to us in so many ways. Uh, there is so much that we need, so many prayers that we need to pray, so much that needs to be changed within us. 
But may we remember that it is nothing that we can do apart from your grace and mercy, apart from your spirit at work transforming our lives, renewing our minds, and sanctifying us into the image of Christ. We thank you for that reality. We thank you that we can rest on the promises of our Savior. I pray for any here that do not know Christ as their Savior, as their Lord. Work in their hearts. Draw them to yourself through the power of your Spirit. Help us, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.